good morning, church, and welcome to Abundant Life to those in the room with me, to those who are watching or listening online or joining us through a podcast. So excited that you are part of this as well. And however you got here, however you're watching this, uh, you are a part of something incredible today as we get the chance to hear from our friend Danielle Strickland. Now, here's the deal. If you came to last year's summit, Danielle needs no introduction. You saw her, uh, you watched her, you're like, oh, I, I get it. This is, this is a big deal. But in case you weren't there, what you need to understand is not only did she speak at last year's, which again, there's like 14 speakers uh, a year uh, for these two days. It gets you know, broadcast to the whole world. But she got invited back to do this year again. And, and, and so it's just an incredible opportunity. I have heard her speak, I think, in a number of states. Uh, she is literally a global speaker. She's from Toronto, Canada, so you're going to have to, like, decipher her accent. It's really thick. It's not thick. Uh, you're going to have to, you know, process that. But here's what's so cool. Uh, she is just one of those people who not only knows Jesus in radical ways, but just, like, follows him and, like, encourages others around uh, her to follow Jesus the way she does. She has written uh, five books. She's been a, an officer in the Salvation Army, which gave her a bunch of really cool preaching stories. Uh, she has gone all over the world speaking, has uh, literally helped to, to launch at least three different nonprofits that are tackling injustice around the world. It's one of those, like, you listen to her talk, and then you go, what have I done lately? You know, you ever had like a person like that where you're like, okay, Jesus. Uh, and so here's what I know. Um, she blew us away on Thursday. She blew us away this morning. Uh, people have not stopped talking about this message and going, wow, uh, the Holy Spirit is moving in this place. So wherever you are, I need you to put your hands together, give a warm, abundant life welcome to our friend, Danielle Strickland. Wow, I'm uh, falling in love with your church. Uh, it is not an overstatement to say that I love the Jernigans, all of them. They're amazing leaders. And, uh, and not an overstatement at all to say abundant life rocks. Yeah. Yeah, the church, I love, I love uh, your church, your community. You've been so gracious. What an honor to be with all of you uh, here this weekend. I get to talk about Jesus. And uh, I love, I can't, actually, the problem is not talking about Jesus. It's like trying to stop talking about Jesus where I get into trouble. So maybe just turn to the person beside you and say, it's going to be okay. It's, it's going it's gonna to be all right. I was, uh, I am Canadian. And that means I'm sorry and I'm nice. <laughs> But it also means that I know how to ski. And uh, I would suggest, I would call myself a survivor skier. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, if I go skiing by myself, I'll survive. But if you go skiing with me, you might not. <laughs> That's the level of my skill. And I had a friend who lived with me for a while who was an avid skier. And so she convinced me to go one night, night skiing with her. And she lent me all the stuff. And we're up on the on the chairlift going up the mountain, and I saw the, the moon. Like, I, I saw the moon like it was the first time I ever saw the moon. I mean, it was full and, like, apocalyptic red, you know? Like, I thought maybe this could be my last night on earth. You know that bumper sticker that says, Jesus is coming, quick, look busy? <laughs> it was one of those moments. I was like, Jesus is coming, and I'm skiing. Nuts. You know, and... But I was like, Whoa. I said, Jenny, like, look at the moon. Like, is that, it is the best moon I've ever seen, the like, crimson, red, and full. And like, ah, scary good. And Jenny looks up. She goes, yeah, it's, it's full tonight. <laughs> and I'm like, I, 
This go, all night long, I'm going on and on about this moon, and Jenny's not appreciating it. I can't believe it. And finally, the last run of the night, I'm up on the chairlift, and I just say, Jenny, I don't want you to miss this. Like, this is the best moon I've ever seen in my whole entire life, so I need you to just look one more time. Like, look again at how red it is, like how full it is. Like, just, I feel like, ah, you've got to behold the moon tonight. So Jenny looks again, and she looks at me, and she looks again at the moon, and she looks at me, and she goes, Oh, she said, you do know those are rose-tinted goggles, right? <laughs> and I said, I do now. And then I, my immediate thought was like, how do I just wear these all the time for the rest of my life, right? Like, this is just made like normal, like way better. But also, I realized that in the life of Jesus, when you look at the life of Jesus, that Jesus is wearing goggles. He's not wearing tinted, rose-tinted goggles. Like, he's not idealistic or naive. It's not like he doesn't see suffering or darkness. He doesn't see kind of what's going on. He's not naive or idealistic, but he is wearing a different kind of lens. He sees things and people differently than anybody else has ever seen before. Jesus wears what I would call a kingdom-tinted lens, a kingdom-tinted goggle, so that when he sees things, when he sees people, when he sees you, when he sees crisis, Jesus sees it differently. He sees it through the lens of the kingdom of God. This is just true no matter who Jesus sees. When he sees uh, crisis, he, everyone else sees sort of pain, suffering. Jesus sees opportunity and possibility. And we're, we're going to have a look at one of these instances in the life of Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 9. Just one instance in the life of the leadership of Jesus where Jesus is inviting us to live life a different way. And he's going to show us how. John, chapter 9. And just starting at verse 1, I'll, I'll read you this. As Jesus is walking along... He saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? You know, just in that verse alone, there's an illusion of choice, by the way. If you're a parent, you know this really well when you're talking to your kids. You don't just give them choices. You give them an illusion of a choice, right? Where you just say, you know, would you like juice or juice? <laughs> would you like red juice or yellow juice? So, you know, you give them this illusion of choice. And the, the disciples are saying to Jesus, like, whose fault is it that this man is born blind? Is it his fault or is it his parents' fault? In other words, it's, it's the same thing they're asking. Who's to blame? And can I just say that for most of our lives, we struggle. We're tempted to stay in this conversation, and we can stay here for a long time. Whose fault is it? We do this in all kinds of ways. I mean, I spent my whole life trying to fight sexual exploitation. Women, getting them out of trafficking situations, out of prostitution, out of all kinds of things. And I spent a lot of times in mayoral meetings and board meetings and nonprofit meetings talking about whose fault is it that it's going on. And this is exactly where the disciples find themselves. Outside of the city is a blind man, and he's left there, and he's stuck there. He's excluded, and he's suffering, and he's blind, and he doesn't have any choices. He's in poverty. And he's stuck. And the disciples are asking whose fault it is. And that's where most of us stay whenever it's suffering, wherever there's circumstances that look too hard. Instead of taking responsibility, we just look for blame. Can I tell you that as long as you're in the whose fault is it category, you're going to be there for some time. And even if you get to the end of the answer, you're going to be at the side of the road with a blind man, still in the exact same place you were when you started. But Jesus does something absolutely remarkable. Listen, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. 
This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. Or in, in some translations, that, that word power actually means glory. So the glory of God, so the essence of who God is, so the image of God on the inside of him, so the power of God could be shown right in that circumstance. In other words, Jesus reframes the whole conversation. I don't want to live in whose fault is it, Jesus said. I want to live in what now? I don't want to live in like, why me, which is this perpetual cycle of conversations that we have about things. I want to live in the, what can we do about it? What's possible now? And this question, this reframe, this opportunity to see things, even dark things, even horrible things, even difficult things, even chaotic things, even things to do with suffering in our own darkness as an opportunity for God's glory, for God's light, for God's hope, for God's power to be seen in our lives and in our community lives. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what Jesus is asking us to do. And this is true in your community and it's true globally as well. I was uh, just with some friends of mine, Camille and Huda Mehi. They run an organization called Heart for Lebanon. They had fled many years ago. Over 20 years ago, they had fled the civil war in Lebanon. And uh, they had fled for their life. On their wedding day, they were bombed by some Syrians. And they fled for their lives. They took their kids out of there, and they raised them and got their uh, theology degree in America and, and, and got the senior pastorhood of a beautiful church and just kind of moved on with their life. And God spoke to Camille right when he was moving on with his life and said, I am not calling you to America. Camille said, that cannot be true. Please, God, don't let that be true. God said to him, I am calling you to Lebanon. I need you to go to Lebanon. And he had this disruption inside of him. He's just like, no, I just got out of Lebanon. Like, I'm not going back there. But God spoke to him. I am calling you to Lebanon. And Camille just told me two weeks ago, he said, I just kept going, replaying this conversation in my head. Why Lebanon? Why now? And why me? He said, I just played it over and over and over again. Why Lebanon? Why now and why me he said I, I went on a prayer retreat with my wife and we just sought the Lord because we just were sure it couldn't be the right thing we were listening to that cannot be God like why would he do this why 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 and you know Camille said that the Lord brought on that prayer retreat when he was seeking God's will for his life he brought him to John chapter 9 this very verse of scripture and he said to him God said to him, stop asking why. Stop looking for blame. Stop running away. Because what I want you to do is realize that what I'm calling you to is a what now life. I'm calling you to enter into this place to show the power of God right in the middle of these circumstances. So Camille, out of obedience to God, went back to Lebanon to care for what he thought was the Iraqi refugee crisis. And he began just caring for refugees and trying to demonstrate the love of God the best way that he could. And a few years into this, as they began to perfect this idea of caring for refugees and sort of emergency disaster relief and all that kind of stuff, the Syrian war broke out. And over a million Syrians trapped in that place began fleeing over the Lebanon mountains in the north and began settling in Lebanon. But no one would look after them and no one would care for them because if you're tracking the story of the Middle East, you'll know that the Syrians were enemies of the Lebanese people. So not, they didn't see them as victims. They saw them as getting what they deserved. Whose fault is it? Syria that you're suffering now it's your fault 
And all of them trapped in this cycle except Camille and Huda and Harper Lebanon had already been called by God 10 years earlier to care for refugees, all the refugees, even the Syrian refugees. So they began to muster up their deep, abundant life principles of following Jesus. Things like forgiveness began to be something that they started to cultivate. They had to get to a deep place where they could forgive their enemies and not only forgive them, but begin to bless them like Jesus commanded, begin to serve them. And they began to serve Muslims. Syrian refugees, they would go tent by tent by tent and say, how can we serve you? The Syrian refugees would be saying, like, what's the catch? What's going on? What's happening? They're like, there's no catch. We follow Jesus, and we're here to serve you. And little by little by little by little, Muslim Syrian refugees started to get saved, started to encounter the love and the forgiveness of Jesus, started to see that life could be lived a different way. Now there's lineups at Heart for Lebanon. I just was with them two weeks ago. They said there's a lineup for practical help, but they said twice as long is the lineup for prayer. And they're coming. This is what they're saying. This is unbelievable. But they're saying, we've heard Jesus answers prayer. Would you pray for our family? And then here's what somebody just said the other day. We heard Jesus was not just for the Christians. We heard Jesus was not just for the Christians. Do you know that in the last 10 years, more Muslims have been saved than in the 1,500 years prior to that? In the last 10 years. Why now? You understand Camille and Huda could still be having conversations in some suburban church in America somewhere talking about why Lebanon, why them, why now? They could still be having this conversation about, well, it's really their own fault. Like, whose fault is it? They could still be around tables discussing the strategies and the, the blame, but instead they actually postured themselves in the way that Jesus postures himself to say, I don't care about whose fault is it. What I want to say is this is a now opportunity. This is the opportunity that I want to show my glory, my power, my light through your life, in your life, in obedience to Jesus. You can participate in God's kingdom come right here on the earth in this circumstance. This is true not only on the other side of the world. This is also true in your own life. And there's an urgency to it. This is what Jesus says in verse 3. It's not because of his sins or his parents' sins. It happens to the glory of God. Then listen to verse 4. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. There's an urgency to it that what God wants to do is bring his kingdom now. Do you know when Jesus announces himself, the kingdom of God, when he announces his ministry, do you know what he says? He says the time is now. It's fantastic. The time is now. You know, God is always eternally present. The time is now. When is a good time to experience the love of God? Now. That's right. When is a good time to experience the forgiveness of sins? Now. When's a good time for you to encounter the abundant life that God has planned for you? Now, it's always now, the time is now. Jesus said the kingdom is near. Repent and believe the good news. You know the word repent has been really abused by religious people as like a stick that you should be sorry for what you've done wrong. When really repentance from the Greek is metanoia, it actually means to change the way you see. It actually means to change your perspective, to change the way you see that actually instead of God being against you, God is for you, that instead of circumstances defining who you are, there's opportunity for God to define who you are, for Jesus to change the trajectory of your life and every single person's life that you encounter. There's an urgency to this. 
One of the best leaders I ever worked with, I, I worked with many years ago when I was just a young volunteer in Russia helping the Salvation Army return there after the collapse of the Soviet Union. She was an old, retired Swedish Salvation Army officer. <laughs> Not exactly the picture of, like, leadership. She was, like, nice. I mean, more nice than a Canadian, I think, the Swedes. I mean, just nice. And did I mention old? And did I mention small? But she exuded such power and authority in her leadership. I mean, I have never, she could confront like Soviet soldiers and they'd move out of the way. You know what I'm saying? Like nobody messed with her. And I saw her in circumstance after circumstance just exude the spiritual authority. And I remember saying to her, Ingrid, like, I, well, I didn't call her Ingrid. She's Commissioner Ingrid Lindbergh to me. And I, I said to her, Commissioner, like, what's your secret? Like, give me your mojo. Like, rub it on me. Like, where are you getting all of this authority from, the spiritual power? Hour. And she said, you know, Danielle, I wish the story was different, but she said, I'll tell you where it began for me. She was leading the Salvation Army in the Philippines. And she said there was this remote village up in the middle of nowhere, and she said they, they, they wanted the Salvation Army to come help them with the project, so they helicoptered, helicoptered me in to meet with the village to discuss whether or not we were going to do this. And she said, I got out of the helicopter, and I went. They were having this big town hall, you know, this big presentation. They were presenting me as this honored guest, and she said the chief was in the middle of his words of welcome, and I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me and say, tell them about Jesus, Ingrid. Tell them about Jesus. And she said, I told the Holy Spirit that now was not a good time. She said, I said it would be rude. I'm like white and Swedish. It's a tribal chief. Like I've got to let him finish. And then as soon as he was done, he welcomed the children's choir. And this choir came up on the stage and they were in the middle of singing a beautiful song. And she said, I felt it again so strongly. The Holy Spirit said to me, Ingrid, tell him about Jesus now. Tell him about Jesus. And she said, I said to the Holy Spirit, now's not a good time. And she said, I found myself actually telling the Holy Spirit, if you look a little further down on the program, you'll see when the right time is. I'm on there to speak. Settle down. But she said before the children's choir finished, there was an alarm that sounded and a storm rolled in and she was whisked away on a helicopter and a hundred people lost their lives that night. And she said she wept and she wept and she wept. And then she said when she got tired of weeping, she made this statement, whatever you tell me to do, God, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. I'll do it right away. And she said the power and the authority that she exuded was not anything to do with some supernatural strength. It was to do with her obedience to what God called her to do. It was to do with her willingness to say whatever God wants me to do is more important than whatever else is happening in my life. We must urgently be about the tasks assigned to us because we don't know See, when Camille and Huda went back to Lebanon, they didn't know the Syrian war was going to break out. They didn't know it was going to be a Syrian. They didn't know that millions of people who could not hear the gospel were going to hear the gospel for the first time. They didn't know that they were going to be part of a movement that was going to bring Muslims to faith in Jesus. They didn't know. They were just being obedient to what God told them to be. We must urgently be about the tasks assigned to us. What God asks you to do is no accident and no fluke and not to be put off. It's for right now. And, and, and how does Jesus actually do this, do this work of the kingdom? I'm, I'm going to share four principles from this story that I hope will help you. This is, maybe you could see this coming, verse 6. 
Then he spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. And he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. And Siloam means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. I don't know about you guys, but I did not see that one coming. <laughs> Whenever somebody asks Jesus for help, it's not that often that he spits in response. I don't know how you would feel about that, right? Like, Jesus, have mercy on me. Just like, let me get a good one. Let me get a good, right? Like, what's happening? And we know Jesus doesn't have to do this, right? We know that he can just be like, see. We know he commands all of the power of the universe. We know he can do that. We know he heals differently every single time, by the way, which is a great hint in terms of how we obey Jesus. It's not by routine or some religious practice. It's through relationship and circumstances. It's through obedience to what's required at the right time to be about what God asks you to do. So what is that about? He spits and then makes mud with his saliva and then puts the mud on the blind man's eyes? Like, what's happening here? I, I want to say principle number one of how Jesus brings God's kingdom into difficult circumstances is this. Jesus will always use every natural means possible. Jesus is not above using spit and mud. I have a hunch that if duct tape had been invented, he would have used some of that. Jesus is not, do you remember when Jesus was uh, feeding 5,000 people? Do you remember that? When he like, he just spoke like, we got to feed these people. So Jesus just looked up to the heavens and said, do it now, God. And God rained down fairy dust on all of the people from heaven. And there was a lightning bolt and like, ta-da. No, you don't remember that because that's not how that happened. What happened was Jesus said, what do you have? And you know what he used to do the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? He used a lunch, people. A lunch. Food. So this might be the Salvation Army person in me, but I think when people are hungry, we should probably feed them. When people are in need, we should actually meet their physical needs. I think when there are things that need to be done, real physical, practical, natural things, God is not above them. God is in them. God is infusing them. God is bringing his kingdom through every natural means possible. I remember uh, going to this church in Edmonton, Canada, and I was uh, in a prayer room. We decided we were going to pray 24-7 and wait for God to show us what to do. The church was right on the strip where women were for sale in that city. And we were praying, really, for God's kingdom to come, for justice. I'm in this prayer room. I'm at, like, 11 p.m. at night, and I'm praying. I'm just going, like, God, show us how. Like, I have some ideas, but I really want to do what you want to do. I want to do it the way that you want to do it. And there's a knock at the door. I remember 11 p.m. in this little inner city church off the strip. And this knock at the door. And I go to the door. I'm like, hello? And there's a guy there going, are you Danielle? I said, yeah, I'm Danielle. He goes, I think these are for you. And he passes me these keys. And he opens the door, and I look out. There's this, like, outreach van. There's, like, this van parked on the, he goes, this is an outreach van. I, I, I felt like God told me to give it to you, you know. Now, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I had a hunch that God might want us to do an outreach in the neighborhood. <laughs> I, just a feeling, just a feeling and a set of keys, you know what I'm saying, to do an outreach in that neighborhood. 
And I remember taking my friend uh, Christine with us, with me. She's a vol- she was a volunteer. She's not a super spiritual person, by the way. She's not like never pray out loud. She's not really into religion that much, but she loves serving the poor and she loves the person of Jesus. So she can make a sandwich and feed somebody. She's coming, you know what I'm saying? So she came with me. We, we go out in this outreach van that's been given to us and we're feeding people. We're inviting them into this kind of living room setting and we're saying, come on in. And we're asking how we can get them to a safe place, what we can do to intervene and the injustice that they're experiencing on the street that night, how we can help, how we can serve, how we can love, what we could do right now. (laughs) And there was one particular corner, just really 25 feet from our church, there was a woman there whose street name was Pocahontas. Pocahontas was the worst uh, person I've ever seen, the worst, uh, I've just never seen anything quite so close to death on the street. And I, I've seen a lot. I've been doing this work for a long, long time. But she, HIV positive. She's just skin and bone. She lost the use of her legs because of abscesses from heroin use. She hopped up in the van. She's selling herself for more heroin on crutches. First Nations, blackness all around her. She had a hood up all the time. And she hopped on the van. I remember she would just maybe take a coffee. And then she'd get off the van again. Never make eye contact. Never look around. Just the picture of death and decay. Remember this one night, she hops on the van, and out of nowhere, Christine just shouts out, Pocahontas, I want to pray for you. <laughs> like, really intense. I remember going, wow, that escalated so quickly. <laughs> what just happened to my sandwich maker? You know what I'm saying? Like, it was like, Shandala, whoa, what's going? And Pocahontas is like, no, and then just like exits the van. So it didn't even work. So like, she shuts the door behind her, and I say to Christine, hey, what's going on? Like, that got a little bit intense. She said, yeah, God spoke to me. I said, no way. <laughs> That's amazing. I always forget sometimes God speaks for himself. It's a danger of a preacher, you know, but I, I said, no way. What did he say? And she said, oh, God clearly said to me that Pocahontas is going to be instrumental in leading many more of her people to freedom. Pocahontas is going to set people free. I said, wow. I said that out loud because I'm a Christian leader. But what I said on the inside was like, oh, God, please protect Christine from her naivety from her ideology, you know, from this rose-tinted goggles of faith. I'm like, please protect her because she, like, protect her for when we drive up here next week and Pocahontas is dead. Isn't it amazing how quickly we can slip into these cycles of cynicism and despair? So easy, like dust just collects on our body. We pull up the next week and Pocahontas gets on and Christine says, can I pray for you? And Pocahontas is like, fine, but when I leave and then exits the van and this goes on and on for months and months and months until finally, literally every night we've been saying to Pocahontas, can we take you to the hospital? Can we take you to the hospital? Can we take you to the hospital? Can we pray with you? No, 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 exit the van. One night Pocahontas gets on and literally before we get a word out, she says, well, could you take me to the hospital already? (laughs) We're driving to the hospital, both Christine and I going like, we're going to the hospital with Pocahontas. And and Pocahontas says, you know what, Christine? If your God is real, he can help me keep my legs. See, the doctors have wanted to cut her legs off for some time. That's why she didn't want to go to the hospital. And she said, if your God's real, he can help me keep your legs. And I remember Christine looking at me. I'm like, I didn't get the word. (laughs) I'm not. This is out of my league. I don't know what to So Christine just prays this really deep theological prayer. God, if you're real, please help Pocahontas keep her legs. Amen. (laughs) 
We get to the hospital, and a few minutes in, the doctor comes out going, Pocahontas, I got some amazing news. We found a way to keep your legs. So Pocahontas looks at Christine. Christine looks at me. I'm like, wow. And then the police arrive, you know, and the police are there to pick up Pocahontas for her seven warrants out for her arrest, which is the other reason why she didn't want to go to the hospital. And, and so Pocahontas says to Christine, if your God's real, he'll keep me out of jail. And Christine looks at me, and I'm like, I don't even think that's theologically correct. <laughs> like, you do the crime, you do the time, right? Like, I'm not... I, I've got nothing. It's all on you. You heard from God. So Christine does another really deeply theological prayer. She says, God, if you're real, please keep Pocahontas out of jail. A few days later, we're at the court, and the judge literally says this. I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm sentencing you, Pocahontas, to a drug treatment program. At which point, Pocahontas looks at Christine from across the courtroom and shouts out, holy shit, I think your God must be real. <laughs> <laughs> which is the sound of revelation isn't it you'll never read revelation the same again right when you never stop saying holy 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 the sound of revelation oh, pocahontas experiencing the power of god every natural means possible god's going to use even an outreach ban even a sandwich even a volunteer who doesn't like praying out loud, he's going to use it. But he's not going to use it just by itself. He's going to infuse it with supernatural power. See, this is what God does. There's not enough mud and spit in the world to put on a blind man's eyes that's going to heal that man of blindness. <laughs> it might help, but it's not going to heal that man. There's only supernatural power can do that. And there is not a competition between the two. There's a beautiful infusion of them both when we follow Jesus. Every natural means necessary infused with the supernatural power of God. Now, I, I could tell you that the street outreach van did not save Pocahontas, but it sure didn't hurt Pocahontas. It sure helped. And a, a doctor isn't the one that saved Pocahontas' legs, but he sure helped save Pocahontas' leg. Every natural means possible, infused with the power of God. I remember years ago doing an inner city uh, church plant in the downtown east side of Vancouver. It's a drug addicted community. And, and there's a, a Spanish drug dealer there that I was really nice to for a long time. I was trying to do an incarnational church plant. So just try to move into the neighborhood and just be present and to be nice and kind and loving towards people. I, was, I thought I was killing it. I was doing such a good job. And I, I remember just prayer walking the neighborhood and I would even make eye contact with the Spanish drug dealer, you know, just like no one else but he's a really scary guy, but I'd be like, I'd, I'd lock on and be like, <laughs> you know, take that, you know, just. And uh, I had this friend visiting me, a really powerful uh, prayer person, you know, one of those prayer people that can like sense things and hear things from God. They always freak me out a little bit, so I make sure all my sins are confessed before they arrive, right? <laughs> I don't want that on my, <laughs> anyway, so. She says to me, you want to go for a prayer walk? And I'm like, sure. So we enter, we leave my apartment, and there, right across the street is a Spanish drug dealer I've been being so nice to for a year. And she's like, oh, he's perfect. <laughs> and she goes running to the Spanish drug dealer. She goes, you want a free word from God? <laughs> and I remember inside dying a little bit. I remember going like, I've spent so long being nice to this guy, and you're going to screw it up in like, you know, five minutes just by being weird, you know? And that's all, you know, I'm, I'm letting you in on my judgmental internal stuff. Thoughts, so stop judging me. So 
I feel it. Just keep Portland weird. Okay, so we're, we go, she goes to this guy. Do you want a free word from God? And he looks at her. He's like, what? She goes, it's free. <laughs> and he goes, okay, if it's free, you know. So she, she puts his, her hand on his shoulder and just says, you know, like, God, please give me a word for this child. And uh, then she goes, oh. She says, I can see you. You're like five years old. You're locked in a closet. You're just crying out, baby Jesus, have mercy on me. Baby Jesus, have mercy on me. Baby Jesus, help me. Does that mean anything to you? And this guy, literally, big, strong drug dealer, drops to the floor, fetal position, and starts crying. How could you know that? How could you know that? How could you know that? And my friend says, Jesus heard you. (laughs) Jesus knows you. Jesus answering your prayer. Jesus has this opportunity right here in the midst of the chaos and the darkness and the suffering and the, and the, the, the complications. Right in the midst of this street, this nasty, gross street, is the glory of God on display. You understand? Now, I like to think that my year of being nice to that guy loosened the lid. Because <laughs> God's going to use every natural means possible. And he's going to infuse every natural means with the supernatural power of God. You understand? They work together. Here's principle number three. Empowering practices. Jesus does something crazy. He says to this blind man, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Why would he do that? He does not need to. Jesus can just say, see, and he could see. Why does Jesus do that? You see, this is... Very consistent in the life of Jesus, by the way, that he gives people who have no choices, choices back. It's empowerment. You know, the definition of poverty is not just economic. It's disempowerment. It's people who have not had the ability to choose for themselves. And Jesus gives them a chance to choose for themselves. And by the way, when he sends the man to the pool of Siloam, Siloam, the scripture tells us, means sent. And if you're tracking at all theologically with this, you'll know that the word apostle is the sent one. So the first apostle found in scripture is not Peter. It's not any of the 12 disciples. It's not some uber religious person. It's not someone who's been to seminary. It's not someone who's qualified. It's not someone who deserves it. It's someone who's stuck on the blind beggar at the side of the road. It's someone who's been excluded. It's someone who's not learned. It's someone who doesn't know. It's someone who feels unqualified. And that could even be you, by the way. Because what Jesus offers you is an opportunity to choose every single time, to choose to obey him, to choose to do what he says, to choose to follow the invitation, to choose to wash yourself, to choose to participate in your own healing. This is the empowering practices of Jesus. It is not too late or too hard for Jesus to show up in your life. And here's principle number four. Jesus will break every religious barrier that puts itself up. Every religious, every social, every cultural barrier that prevents the good news from getting out, Jesus will break it. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus uses just enough mud and just enough saliva to break the Sabbath law. Weird, huh? Jesus uses just enough mud and just enough saliva to break the Sabbath law. 
If you want to, later when you go home, read the rest of the story. It turns into a Monty Python skit. As the religious leaders who are outraged at Jesus' behavior, as usual, breaking the Sabbath law, call this blind beggar in who can now see, who is now apostolic, who's now been sent as a witness to the light and the glory of the power of God in the here and now. And they, they literally, they put him on the stand, they call his parents, they get him in, and they're just like, who is Jesus? These religious learned people asking this blind beggar. And the blind beggar says to them, really? You need me to tell you? It's come to that. See, religious laws, they'll try to keep you safe, but they'll prevent the good news from getting where the good news needs to get, to the outskirts, to the outside, to those who feel like they don't belong, to those who are excluded, for those who are blamed and shamed for their own behavior, to those people, whoever they might be. God will break your religious sensibilities. He'll mess up your theology. He'll do whatever it is to take those safety wheels off. My son Judah I brought with me on this trip. He's when eight years old last summer, and he still was using training wheels to ride a bike. It was fine. He likes to be safe. He's a cautious kid. He wants to be thorough, and he doesn't want to fall. He's smart. But on that particular day, there was a five-year-old little girl, a neighbor friend who just whizzed by on a bike with no training wheels, and I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> and so I just turned up the day. I just said, Judah, honey, it's time. The time is now like this is it like this is the time like you're ready you're strong enough you're ready I know that you've got the capacity to ride a bike without training wheels and he said it'll hurt I said it might hurt but it's going to be awesome give it a try I'll just flip him up try it one time so I flipped them up he tries it one time he comes riding back like the wind like a chariots of fire video like slow-mo and music playing a big smile on his face and he said mom I can totally ride a bike and I said I know I know I knew you were ready and he looked at me and he goes, you could totally preach this. <laughs> and I said, thanks, honey. And he said, no, think about it, mom. He said, think about it. My training wheels were holding me back. And think about it, people of God, beloved followers of Jesus. Your training wheels keeping you safe, those things that you safeguard your life with, they can hold you back. And for following Jesus as a great example of a leader who changes things, he's going to use every natural means possible. He's going to infuse your natural offering with supernatural power. He's going to empower you and the people that you serve to make choices for yourself, to choose to follow him. And he's going to break every religious, social construct that will hold the gospel back from getting where the gospel needs to get. And he's going to do this because he is love, because he's Jesus, because now is the time. Let me pray with you. God, I am so grateful that you found this beggar on the side of a road. And you gave me choice when you opened my eyes to see and you sent me to a pool of Siloam and you cleansed me and washed me. And right now, as this beggar tells these beggars where to find bread, would you help us, lead us, challenge us, free us, infuse us 
with the possibilities of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And all God's people said, amen, amen. 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 I don't know about you, but man, I just...